Hi, and welcome to the Financial Planner Life podcast, where we talk to professionals at varying stages in their career about what it's like working in the wonderful world of financial planning and financial advice. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Recruit UK, a recruitment consultancy specifically focused on the financial services. They have a niche specialism, recruiting, within the financial planning industry. So check out their website for the latest job opportunities, hints and tips, and blog articles. Hello, everyone. It's Elena back for this week's episode of the Financial Planner Live podcast. And I am joined by Yasmin Lambert, Chartered Financial Planner and Managing Director of Redwood Financial. In this week's episode, we talk about why you don't have to go to university to have a successful career within financial planning the intersectionality between being a young and female financial planner. We discussed the transition from being a chartered financial planner into management and also how to build your confidence. Good morning, Yasmin. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much for spending taking the time to speak with me this morning. So as always, if we could begin by you just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a financial planner um, and I run Redwood Financial. We're a family owned business, actually. So dad started the company, oh gosh, probably back in like 1999 now. Um, but since 2014, I've been the managing director. Um, so I kind of deal with the day to day running of the business as well as sort of seeing clients as well. Yeah. Fab. So um, to begin with, you specialise in wills, trusts and pensions, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So the traditional um, sort of uh, financial planner type services, particularly around pensions and investments, uh, are our sort of two core areas. But then I suppose what makes us a little bit different or a little bit unique um, is also the addition to um, the estate planning side of things. So advising clients on wills, lasting powers of attorney, trust, those kinds of things as well. Yeah. So how did that come about? Because we discussed it previously. How did you sort of specialise or hone in on that skill set as such? Yeah, I think it was just a very organic or it felt at the time a very organic sort of um, evolution really of we spent a lot of time sort of helping to clients to grow their wealth, you know, talking about investments and pensions and building that wealth up. Um, And we kind of felt that there was sort of a missing piece of the puzzle and we're not helping clients to then protect that wealth. And, you know, it was that typical process at annual review stage, you know, we tell Mm -hmm. the client, look, you really should get your will updated um, or have one because some of them didn't even have one. And then we'd see them six months or a year later and they still didn't have a will in place because they hadn't got around to seeing anyone Or if we did see them and they had a will, it was that very typical kind of just leave everything to each other and then down to the kids type situation. They hadn't actually received any advice around things like inheritance tax planning or care fee planning or, you know, protecting the family bloodline and keeping that money inside the family. And so we really felt like there was sort of a, a space in the market, I think, to give clients that much more holistic advice and say, actually, let's just not just build the wealth for the sake of building it. Let's build it with the goal to then enjoy it. But also whatever you do pass down to the next generation, let's make sure it's safe and protected for them. And it goes down in the most tax efficient way possible. So it really, as I say, now we do it, you know, it just seems like it's an obvious natural fit and an obvious natural synergy, really. Um, But that's kind of how it started sort of 10 years ago now. And then, as you say, it's become a a really massive core part of our business. Mm -hmm. And I think it's funny that you use the word holistic there, because 
as you just touched on to begin with, you know, financial planning can very often be viewed as building your wealth, building your wealth to a certain point. May that be um, through investment or obviously building your wealth. So at retirement age, you've got that nice little pension sort of all set up and ready. But as you just touched on, you know, the, the wills, the estate planning side of things, really allows you to tie into this holistic model of financial planning. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just so much more powerful as well, because we actually get to see the the money and the wealth that you've helped that client build in action. Because when that time comes and the client passes away, you're able to then support the family and watch that money then pass down to the next generation and be an integral part of that advice process as well, which the families are really grateful for. But you really get to see it. You know, you get to see the the kids paying off their mortgage or, you know, um, you know reinvesting some for their own financial freedom. You know, it's really it's a really positive and I think we have much more impact when we can cross those generations as well. Yeah, I can imagine as you touched on then, you know, through that um, long-term sort of planning, you can really add value to your clients as such. Absolutely, yeah. And um, as you just touched on, you know, financial planning in general is so different to how it used to be. It's all about, um, you know, funding your children through university, you know, planning for your dream holiday. So I can imagine that side of things, you know, the inheritance tax planning, the estate planning, all sort of combined allows you to really you know, play on this holistic financial planning model because, yeah, as you just had, uh, said, it's intergenerational. You can look after your children. You know, it's not just about the here and now and, you know, what you're going to get next yeah. year as such. Yeah, absolutely. I've never met any client that's just wanting to build wealth for the sake of building wealth. There's always some kind of goal and objective, whether it's for themselves, as you say, that, you know, once in a lifetime holiday or to retire early. But then once those things are kind of done, it then becomes about, well, we're building wealth to help help our kids. That's like you say, to help them on the property ladder, help them through university, whatever those costs are. And so there's always some goal. And it and invariably, um, if you have children, it's a very expensive thing. And it normally <laughs> um, is about helping the kids. So yeah, like you say, we found it hugely powerful and it just really ties in with everything that our clients are looking to achieve anyway. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And as we just had touched on, you know, financial planning is so much more complex than potentially it used to be and being able to offer that intergenerational support and being there not just yeah. for your clients but their children as well potentially even their grandchildren is is really really powerful yes. and that's yeah. what you're doing now Yasmin so how did we get to the, how did you get to this point do, would you like to sort of discuss to the audience like your career journey as such how did you get to sort of the point that you are today yeah, the, je- the when I when you say like the career journey, it makes me feel so old at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, like you say, everyone's got their own journey. I suppose yeah. their own story, and and I suppose for me, um, the thing that is a little bit different is kind of choosing not to go down the university mm-hmm. route um, and that being a very conscious decision really at the time. So, you know, I think probably like most financial planners, um, I, I fell into the the profession. Um, I fell into it and then fell completely in love with it. I didn't expect this to be my career at all. Um, but yeah, I started, uh, I was at college, I was doing my A-levels, I was studying marketing and psychology. So nothing related to the world <laughs> of finance in any way, shape or form. Um, but whilst I was at college, I, I needed some part-time money um, to pay for driving lessons and the insurance on my first car and all of those things. And so I, I, I managed to get a job um, working for my dad in his firm, uh, just sort of doing a bit of part-time 
administration, a little bit of marketing for him. Um, and, and yeah, that was great. It gave me a little bit of fun money um, each month. And I kind of got to the end of uh, college. I got my A-levels and the kind of assumption really was, well, if you've got the grades to go to university, surely you're going to university. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just seemed to me, and there was a lot of pressure from my sort of tutors and my teachers at the time to sort of say, well, you know, surely you're going to go to university. And I just thought, well, that's that's not one. The first question is, can we get into university? Have Mm -hmm. you got the grades? Of course, I appreciate that's the first challenge. But once you have got the grades, surely then the next question is, well, should I go to university? Is that right for me? And for me, I kind of, I, I think I'm, I'm like most young people at that age, you know, you're very young. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my, with my life, with my career. I was good at marketing. I was good at psychology. I liked both. I was equally interested in both. And I, I couldn't get off the fence. And I thought, well, I just don't feel like it's right that I go to university, end up with a degree that I might not use or need or really have a passion for get into all of that debt I think that's what really was a thing for me that the debt for something that you know I wasn't sure about if I knew I wanted to be a doctor or a teacher Mm -hmm. and I was going to have to go to university then of course you're going to make that investment in your further education but I was so on the fence and I didn't feel like it was worth getting into that kind of debt for so I decided actually you know qualifications or not university wasn't the right path for me and I was going to go into the, the workforce and uh, that really started and I just assumed I'd get a job in marketing so you know went off and applied and got a job and then I realized I was going to have to hand my notice in at my dad's firm you know for that part-time job and I realized I felt really quite heartbroken about that quite sad you know the the team that was already there I built good relationships with them and so I said to my dad look actually I think I'm really sad about leaving I think I might want to come join full-time instead of part-time and him and my mum who were running the the firm together at that point they both sort of said oh my god that's great we wanted you to come join um but we didn't want to put any pressure on you so it was a really good it was really fortuitous they felt the same way as I did um so I then turned that marketing job down and went and joined them full-time and I just assumed I'd be doing the same sort of thing you know administration bit of marketing for them but very quickly dad was like no if you're going to come into the family business, let's let's go fully into the family business. And so I would work through the day um, and do my day job with him. And then I would study at home of an evening to start getting my financial qualifications. Um, so yeah, it meant that, you know, again, I, for me, obviously, as, as a path, everyone learns differently. But I found it really useful because I was learning sort of real life skills, real life experience, meeting clients, seeing clients, watching my dad in action. And that really cemented then all of the technical learning that I was doing at home of an evening with the textbook. So, you know, I think it really sort of supported that. And I personally think it allowed me to kind of probably get my exams that little bit quicker as well, just because mm-hmm. of that real life experience sitting mm-hmm. alongside. So it meant that, yeah, by the time I was 20, um, I was level four um, certified. Um, I didn't put that to use straight away. Um, I just did power planning to begin with. Um, and then it sort of progressed from there really um and like I say I just unexpectedly fell in love with it you know every client is different every story every objective that the client's trying to achieve is, is different every family dynamic is different you know no one day is the same for me and uh, and I absolutely adore that it's the the people and the clients I think that I completely fell in love with so oh, oh it's so amazing to hear how much you enjoy it and how like passionate and excited you are about the industry that like, they'd like definitely shines through. Um, 
you did you do sort of like all explore all the different roles like start at an administrative level do a bit of power planning explore all the roles before you stepped into sort of financial planning did yeah I have done it all so I started (laughs) at the bottom of the rung I started in reception um I worked like you say my way through into administration then into power planning um and then into an advice role and so you know I personally think that's given me again that huge breadth of knowledge and that huge breadth of experience and understanding you know and uh, as an advisor now you know there's things I do that I know will frustrate my power planners if I don't get the right information if I don't give them enough detail Mm -hmm. or instruction and because I was a power planner myself I think I have much more of an understanding as well of you know, not just the, the the fun part of the job, which I think is getting to speak to the clients, mm-hmm. but it's like, actually, I need to make sure that I get a detailed fact find, that I get all the right information because that's going to help the power planners do their job. And so, you know, I think there's there's a much more deeper respect and appreciation for the different roles when you've gone through them all as well. And you've seen them from the different aspects as well. So that I think has been hugely valuable. Yeah, yeah. deeper respect, as you said, 100% in regards to you understand sort of what the other job roles entail. Also, I guess it just cements your technical knowledge, probably puts you in a better place to become a financial planner, having gone through all the different roles. Absolutely. Yeah. By the time I then became sort of client facing um, and started seeing clients again around sort of 2013, 2014, started actually seeing clients um, sort of having then dealt with clients though on a power planning basis really it didn't feel like such a big scary leap as well into Mm -hmm. then an advice role too so yeah that was that was hugely valuable for me the experience that I've gained and then obviously you know since then been able to go on to doing my chartered as well so just adding to that technical knowledge all the time but it is that balance between technical and real life experience and that's you know that's the one thing you can't get from the textbook is the real life experience. So you just touched on then, well, you touched on previously that obviously when you were first in your level four diploma, you were studying at home and you were studying in the evenings yep. and then going in in the day, sort of working in, in at Redwood and in the office. And you said the yep. balance was really important. Why do you think the real life experiences and the technical sort of team together is so valuable? I think I think like you say it the the textbook is fantastic obviously for the the technical knowledge and the understanding of what a client can and can't do and the the right products and solutions but then you, we've got to remember that behind the textbook there are they're, they're human beings um clients are human beings they have fears they have hopes and ambitions they have worries and concerns and so you have to be I think experienced in understanding and picking up on those cues and listening to a client you know in a textbook might say well this is what you should do every single time but there are circumstances in the real world where that's just not appropriate for that particular Mm -hmm. client or that's you know just not going to meet their needs so I think like you say that's that's hugely important that you get that face-to-face client time and you get that experience of really learning to be a good listener um, asking the right questions of the clients and those things they don't teach you in the textbook from yeah. that point of view so um, I think that's a yeah a huge part in achieving that balance. So I guess as you just said then you know the textbook can teach you all the technical knowledge but it's the actual going out and you know working in the office and acting as a point of contact with clients yeah. and speaking with clients that's going to help you build the soft skills which you need. Absolutely yeah absolutely and it's probably if anything it's those softer skills which lend itself more to an advisor role you know in the future um, you know the, the clients aren't really bothered 
knowledge about the product or the technical stuff. They assume that you've got all of that knowledge Mm -hmm. and you've got all of that correct. Obviously, you have to have it all correct. You have to have the technical knowledge. But really what the client wants is that person that they can have a really good relationship with, trust and good communication and that they feel like they're being listened to and they're being understood. So especially when you're in an advice role, that those soft skills are so vitally important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like you say, often can sometimes get under undervalued. Yeah, I completely agree that that soft skills can definitely be very often undervalued. Potentially for someone right now that's sort of studying for their exams, you know, might be in a back office position, wanting to step yeah. into client service in the future. How would you recommend that they, is there any advice that you can give to help them build on that soft skill set? Yeah, I think obviously there's a, there's a couple of different things that I certainly did. Um, as I say, I had the the benefit of of working, you know, with my father, which was great. So he was a great resource. We did a lot of like role playing. So he would role play and pretend to be a client um, and sometimes be a challenging client, sometimes be a really nice, friendly, easy client um, and different scenarios. And he'd you know, fill out fact finds, initial fact finds and things like that and, and would kind of test me if you like and and so that was kind of good to have that role playing from that side of things. I think the other thing that, you know, if you're in a, a non-advice role at the moment, if you're in more of an administration or power planning role, is kind of asking your advisors, you know, how can you better help them? How can you mm-hmm. add value? And whether that's, you know, asking for the opportunity to come and sit in on some of their meetings so you can see them in action, see their soft skills in action. Um, but also, you know, little things like, you know, if it's just, you know, taking the client through some uh, basic paperwork and getting some signatures, do they need to see the advisor for that? Are they happy for you as the power planner to have like a sort of quick get together with the client and and deal with that paperwork? Um, and so those little bits of administration, if you can start taking them off of the advisor's sort of plate and you can start getting in front of clients to do those those things, that's again, just going to start building up your experience. You're not seeing them in an advice capacity at that stage, but you're just getting used to talking mm-hmm. to them, holding conversations, you know, all those soft skills, asking how they are, um, and that's just going to slowly build that confidence, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Especially on the recruitment side of things, I deal with lots of candidates, may that be sort of administrators, power planners, people in different back office situations that want more client contact, but a bit like apprehensive to like how their firm will react if they ask, as you just said, you know, can I take the lead a bit more? You as a managing director, you know, yeah. would you be receptive to one of your employees came and sort of asked you to do something like that absolutely yeah absolutely I think it shows great initiative I think it shows great ambition and obviously as an advisor and also as a managing director our time is really busy you know and 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 we're running from one meeting to another sometimes and any support we can have where you know a power planner or an administrator says look I can trust me I can take this off of you I can see that client and just do that bit of admin um, is fantastic, you know, because that just frees up our time as well. So it, I think it adds huge amounts of value to the business that you're working for. And I don't know um, many uh, advisors that wouldn't appreciate that kind of extra support. Exactly. To be I completely agree. And I have this conversation with candidates all the time. You know, if you want more client contact, go and ask the question. So it's great to hear from your perspective as a managing director. Yeah. If someone came and sort of asked that to you or said that to you, that you would be sort of receptive to that. So if we go back to yeah, absolutely. Your, your beginning of your journey, you sat in your kitchen studying for your level four diploma. As you said, you know, you had completed your level four diploma by the time that you were 20. I yes, yeah. Lots of people went, well, like the usual age of like graduating university is sort of 21. So if you consider, yeah, you, you didn't go to university, but you had that qualification, which is 
the benchmark within the industry before potentially all your friends sort of had that did go to university had graduated so it definitely goes to show you know especially for this industry where that level four diploma is the benchmark as much as some sort of university courses or degrees they'll give you a couple of ROs or something like that and that'll be combined in the course doesn't necessarily add the same value yeah so um so you know not going to university you think that like benefited you to a certain extent within this industry as such Hi, it's Charlie. I'm sorry to interrupt you mid-episode, but I had an idea and if you've been thinking about it, I might just have the answer. If you've been sat here thinking, I need more support in my career, I don't have access to everything I need to put me on this career trajectory all these guests on the podcast have, I know where you need to go and you need to click the link in the description which will take you to the Financial Planner Life Academy. This is the first fully independent academy. You'll have access to all the resources you need for all of your qualifications, plus soft skills training, live Q&As with experts and a load of career advice in there as well. I won't keep you any longer so you can get back to the episode, but click that link in the description if I've made you curious. I think so. I think, like you say, in this particular industry, and especially if you you do want to ultimately become client facing, um, that that real life experience, like you say, that you that I wouldn't have got had I gone to university potentially. You know, there's other experiences I would have got from going to university mm-hmm. just from the social side of it. So there's there's other things that you might still go down that university path if that's right for you. But especially if you don't sort of learn in the traditional way of you know lectures and classrooms and things like that, and you learn much more by doing and seeing, being able to work and get work experience inside a practice. Um, at the same time as studying I think massively helped me and like you say allowed me to a get through my qualifications a lot quicker because I think a lot of that knowledge was cemented a lot quicker for me seeing it in in the real life action Um, and then as I say it's definitely accelerated I think my relationship with clients accelerated my journey to become client facing because I've not had to do the kind of technical study for so many years before I can then even get in front of a client or see a Mm -hmm. practice in action so um, that's definitely accelerated things and was was the right decision for me absolutely and I think hopefully other people might now appreciate it could be a path for them as well because as I say it's that almost that assumption of well if you have a certain level of A-level results or certain amount of grades you have to go to university yeah. or actually who says you have to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it has got its value for a lot of people of course it has but just because it's expected yeah, uh, yeah. or conventional doesn't yeah <laughs> but um it's exactly the same for me you know when I did my levels it was uni 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 I went to uni I loved uni as you said I had, it added lots of value in lots of different ways yeah but am I using my degree now no am I ever probably going to use my degree probably not to be honest and it is that sort of change and changing the narrative yeah. as such that especially at those school leavers you don't have to go to university and as we know you know the financial planning industry in the long run, is suffering a skill shortage as such. As more financial planners mm. across the next set of 10 years and such, as such retire, there's going to be an even larger skill shortage. So you obviously yeah. became a school leaver and joined a financial planning firm. Obviously, your dad being a financial advisor is a key reason for this. But how do we encourage yeah. more people at school level to join a wealth management firm? I think there's uh, just generally there's a lack of education um, at school level um, across the board, really, about good 
financial money management. You know, there are kids leaving school at 16, going into apprenticeships and jobs, and they don't even know how to open a bank account or run a simple budget, you know, when they start getting a a monthly income for the first time. And if we look at the kind of wealth gap that there is across the UK, mm-hmm. where the rich essentially get richer and, and the poor stay poorer. A lot of that is around good financial education. If they're not learning it at home in terms of money management, debt management, you know, budgeting, all those kinds of things, they're not learning it in school. So they're just kind of doomed to repeat the same kind of process and, and come away from, from school being sort of really bad with money and it's and it's not something for some reason that's not part of the curriculum and I think if it was not only would we have younger people leave you know college and school more informed and better at managing their own money once they go into the workforce but also there would be some people as part of that education process that would go oh actually I find this quite interesting and and that then in turn might lead them down actually a career path in this area but because it's not even discussed um, anywhere in the curriculum uh, I think it's really hard for for younger people really to even understand that a career in finance you know could be an option for them. Yeah so do you think that by potentially teaching children at a younger age level about their finances may that be you know basic budgeting how to apply for a mortgage, what what your taxes even are. You think by yeah. educating children at this younger level about finances, it will in, they will obviously become more aware of financial planning and encourage more people to become financial planners or join the profession in the future. Absolutely. I think, like you say, that would be um, the, uh, the obvious benefit of doing that, as well as, as I say, just improving the overall knowledge and education about how people manage their money. Exactly. I completely agree. Because when we speak especially about and I've spoken about it before on the podcast, is definitely like a recurring theme that we need to have more conversations about money, you know, um, um, especially when I, um, especially on the recruitment side, when I recruit for roles that are a bit more entry level, lots of people aren't even aware of financial planning. So it definitely goes to show that the the knowledge gap is such. And flipping the coin on its head though, as we said, you know, there is a skill shortage, not only by offering these financial education to younger people, it's not just important for their own, financial futures but you know it can also really help the yeah. profession by educating them getting people interested about it and encouraging yeah. them to join the industry in the future absolutely yeah absolutely which um, like you say is what we need yeah 100 percent. and um Yasmin you are a young female financial planner so there's an element of intersectionality with yourself because I've had conversations with female financial planners and they have um, certain experiences and face certain barriers due to being a female financial planner. And I speak to younger age profile financial planners that face barriers as such because they're a younger age profile. But you have had the combination of the both, which I'm sure has I'm sure has displayed its own challenges as such. But a recurring theme when I speak to these individuals, may that be female financial planners, younger age profile financial planners, is that they can sometimes feel there's a lack of confidence within themselves. So how have you sort of built your confidence over time? Well, I'm definitely, uh, I'm going to take the young part there as a compliment. I don't feel young <laughs> anymore, but I was, I was certainly young when I, um, when I started out. I think there was, there was a couple of things, I guess, that kind of um, happened, I suppose, very early on. And, and thankfully, again, I, I had a, a great mentor in, in my father. So mm. I was really fortunate in that, in, in the sense that he drilled into me um, really from from quite a young age from the start of the career really that you know our job is is to make sure that we are confident in what we do and when we give advice to clients if we're on the fence if we're not sure if we come across like we're, we're not entirely confident in what we're saying 
they're going to doubt us. They're mm. going to have a lack of confidence in us. And that means they could potentially walk out and, and not do the important planning that they need need to do and if that means they don't take out that life insurance because I've not been confident about how important that is and then they go and have a critical illness or die and and leave their spouse with a mortgage and there's nothing to pay it off or if they leave the office and they've not done that will you know there are quite serious ramifications you know I know we're not doctors and we're not saving people's lives but we are having a really big impact on people's lives and so I think my dad instilled in me from the beginning that if there's nothing else that you do, your job is to make sure that you impress upon your clients the impacts and the, the outcomes if they don't take your advice and the downsides and what could go wrong. And, and you have to just be confident and get off the fence and, and tell your clients what they need to do to protect themselves, to build their wealth, whatever it is that they're worried or concerned about. Because the worst thing you can do is is do a disservice to them by not giving them that ability to be confident into you. So very early on, I kind of went into all of my client meetings just with the viewpoint of, you know, you're here for advice. The client needs help. The Mm -hmm. client is looking for answers. What reason is there to doubt my advice? You know, so having that confidence in my skills and my knowledge and my experience, I just went in just assuming that you're going to listen to me regardless of the fact that I'm a woman or I'm young, I just assume that you're here and you're going to listen to my advice because I'm the advisor. And so I think there's an element of, I think that naturally just came out in my body language and and that confidence, I think, just came through. So the clients then had confidence in it. So that's not to say that some people aren't discriminated against because of their gender or because of their age or anything like that. Absolutely, I'm sure it does happen. Um, but for me personally, that's not been my experience. And I think part of that is just because I've just gone into those meetings expecting that there was going to be that respect for my advice, my knowledge and my skills. Um, and I think that's then come through in my in my body language and the way in which I conducted myself. And so the client felt comfortable. The client didn't feel the need to question anything due to my gender or my age. And the other thing I think I really did, and and it's funny, I still do it to this day. So it just shows you that it works is I do a lot of like visualization. So like I'm really into the psychology of kind of mind over matter and that kind of stuff. And I really do think like, you know, if you think you can, you can. And if you think you can't, you can't. Um, And it is sometimes that simple. So, you know, I from the beginning kind of made like a track in my mind of like, this is how my client meetings are going to go. So we're going to start with, you know, welcoming them and then we're going to go through the fact find stuff. And then we're going to ask them some questions about this and not a sort of script. So it's not kind of cold or anything like that. It's not like a a script, but kind of in my head, I have this agenda, this running order, which basically says, right, this is what I'm going to do. Um, And then I'm going to explain how we work and the costs and charges. And then, you know, the client's then going to ask some really interesting, good questions And then the client's going to say, yeah, let's proceed. And I kind of use that kind of track to visualize, you know, about 15 minutes before I have a meeting, no matter what meeting I'm having, I use those 15 minutes to make sure that I'm fully prepared. I know who I'm seeing. I know what they're coming to see me about, what their worries and concerns are. If they're an existing client or a new client, I know all of that stuff. And I use those 15 minutes before to then just literally close my eyes and visualize them coming in, them being really warm and and welcoming and greeting, um, sitting down, having a bit of a chat, going through that process of the meeting. 
and them being really happy and confident with me at the end and saying, yes, they want to move forward. And I visualized that meeting going well. And then funnily enough, we go into the meeting and the meeting goes well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think it very much for me is that that's another trick or a tip, I guess, that as I say, I used in the beginning was that visualization, but I I still do it now. I still prep for every single meeting. I still do that visualization now, even after all these years, because that's what gives me the confidence to go, yeah, I've got this. And and it's definitely a psychological uh, thing, I think. Yeah, 100%. As you just touched on then to begin with, it's mind over matter, isn't it? If you, as much as we can talk about all these different barriers and things like that, and as you just said, you know, they definitely happen. I've spoken to so many candidates and individuals that have gone through all these different experiences, but it's all about your mentality at the end of the day. And if you Mm. don't feel confident, it's definitely going to resonate. So it's a really nice tip there in regards to the sort of the visualization. I completely agree. And this is just aside from, you know, financial plan or anything. If you think something is going to go badly, it probably is going to go badly. But you've pre you've predetermined, you've predestined it to go badly. If like you say, if you walk into that meeting thinking, oh, this client's really difficult. They're going to ask loads of difficult questions. They're going to have loads of barriers. Yeah. You're going to find those things happen because you've just, like you say, you've worked yourself up. And I do, I believe it's so self-fulfilling. Um, like you say, you've, you've preordained it really. So if you walk in going, this is going to be a great meeting. You're going to love me. I'm going to love you. We're going to get along like a house on fire. It's going to be great. You yeah, know, it's, it's really hard for it to go the other way. Yeah. yeah, And I think that visualization, that's a really good tip for the audience out there. You know, maybe if you are feeling a little bit nervous before you're going into client meetings for one reason or another, you know, visualizing that it's going to go well um, and backing yeah. yourself at the end of the day. And yeah. I guess it all ties in with the facts we touched on before. Preparation is key. And you can only yeah. visualize it and do this whole thing of sitting there and plan how the meeting's going to go if you have prepared yourself. So absolutely, preparation yeah. is key. Yeah. And I think it also lends itself as well. So many of, of my clients will be impressed that I've come prepared to the meeting, that I remember things that we said from our last meeting or that I've got, you know, all the right information to hand. So I think that also then in turn is again, self-fulfilling because the client can see that preparation. They can see that you're prepared for them. They feel valued and respected. Um, and then you're going to get the same you know, back. It's a very reciprocal thing. So like you say, I just, I don't think you can ever be too prepared. And, no. and the, the the danger is that as you get more experienced, as you get older, you think, oh, I don't need to do that. I know <laughs> what I'm doing. I don't need to prep. I can just go straight into a meeting. Well, there are times when, you know, just because things are really busy, I don't get to do my full prep. And, and my meetings are always never as smooth, always more rushed. And I always finish those meetings going, oh, I could have been better. Yeah. You know, and so even now after all this time, that's why I still I still do that prep. I still do that visualization work and yeah, and that it's prep with, work. with anything though. Even you know, with myself, you know, if I have a meeting that I'm feeling particularly anxious about, or you know, I have something that I'm a bit more nervous about. If I don't do anything and sit on it, by the time that meeting comes, I am going to be stressed. But yeah. if I take yeah. the time, if I take the time out before a couple of days before, yeah, and then on the day. To go yeah. through it, make sure I'm feeling prepared. I will go into a meeting that I was nervous about knowing that I am going to smash it because yeah. I have laid in the groundwork and I visualized it. So I think this is a really nice little couple of tips. If you're out there potentially not feeling very confident or feeling mm. a bit anxious about certain things, preparation is key. And That's you know, good. tell yourself that you can do it. Get yourself into the positive mind frame because you're going in there telling yourself that it's going to be great. It probably is going to go great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
Um, we've spoken about, and I speak with advisors all the time about that transition from sort of back office into client facing. However, you have done the transition from just being um, a financial planner into being a managing director. So how was that transition from sort of being an advisor into management? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly easier, I think, going from power planner to advisor. That was much more organic because at least it was still related to being client facing and related to financial services. Going from, you know, an advisor to a leader, to a managing director and and suddenly having to have entrepreneurial skills or, you know, leadership skills of an entire team. It, that was much more scary that that was much more scary that was a that was a big challenge and and there was the kind of physical stuff i guess that happened quite quickly in terms of you know freeing up my diary and having days where i didn't see clients and i worked primarily on the business as opposed to in the business um but i think mentally uh, again psych- psychologically it took a while for my brain to kind of catch up and go oh oh no you are the managing director now you can make these decisions on your own you don't have to check in with someone else or ask permission um uh, but also then the fear of all, all of those decisions are on my shoulders as well mm-hmm. so if you make the wrong call there's literally no one else to blame but yourself um and so really I think you know for me, what I had to do is I had to do a lot of education. I had to go back to school, really, because I had all my technical qualifications to be an advisor. But I then basically went back to school and of an evening would then read every book that I could possibly get on management and leadership um, and entrepreneurial skills and every business book from every you know fantastic business owner that's out there I would just read and try and get as much information and knowledge as I could in that area because again it's not something they teach you Mm -hmm. at school or even through the technical um, qualifications and exams so that was really something that I had to work on um, 100% and I think part of that also came with again that confidence and that acceptance to go actually, I might be the managing director, but I am also still human. And so sometimes I have some great ideas for the business that are fantastic and they do great things. And there are other times when I have ideas that are really rubbish (laughs) and just completely flop. Um, And that's okay. I think having that vulnerability and especially, you know, leading by example for the rest of the team, um, it is okay to make mistakes. I'm the managing director and I still make mistakes. I still have ideas which are absolutely awful. Um, and I look back now and go, oh, I can't believe I thought that was going to be a good <laughs> idea or I thought that was going to go well. Um, and it, I, I just think as long as you can use anything like that as a learning process, you know, and we've got like a little saying in, in our team of if you're not winning, you're learning. Um, so if we're not winning and we're not getting it right, then we're learning. And yeah. actually that just helps us get quicker to the next win and move on to the next win so um yeah we don't really say like we've made mistakes or we've messed up we we literally if something doesn't go right we just go well if you're not winning you're learning and that's kind of the view that that we've had to take (laughs) I love that I'm gonna take that with me moving forward Jasmine I actually really really like that because you've also gotta you know we just touched on you've got to take even if it's a failure you've got to take the positive out of that nothing is ever a failure you've Maybe you didn't handle no. something in the right way, but now you know how to handle it in that correct way Absolutely. moving forward. Absolutely, yeah. 
And um, I, you know, the same way that I speak with lots of back office people that want to step into client face and obviously speak with lots of advisors mm. that want to take that leap into management. I know you mm. touched on obviously going back and reading books and things like that. What advice would you potentially give to people that want to take that leap into sort of management or senior level um, in, re- in regards to their firm? Yeah, I think, again, it, I think it's about breaking it down into stepping stones. You know, and when we talk about like my journey, I didn't go from advisor straight into managing director actually what happened is whilst I was advising and seeing clients I was also sort of start I started off doing a bit of like team leader roles you know Mm -hmm. when I was a power planner we had a team of power planners and I would be the kind of team leader of those power planners and then I kind of moved into like an office manager role where like the day-to-day operations of the business was kind of my job um, and my father was still the MD and made all the crucial decisions. So I, I got little uh, stepping stones, if you like, and I managed to dip my toe into management. And it started off maybe by only looking after a couple of team members and then it goes to the whole office. Mm-hmm. And, and so then so you started to amass those skills a little bit, which definitely then aided obviously making that bigger leap from from you know advisors straight into to managing director from that point of view so obviously the reading I think is a huge thing um, but then like you say asking for more responsibility if you are in a, a power planner administrator role you're looking as you say to you know actually move into more of a management role uh, going to the managing director the leadership team and saying I want more responsibility how can I add more value to the business how can I take on more responsibility so that I can grow my my management skills and just see what they start giving you um, from that and take those opportunities as and when um, they're given to you. But you have to ask for them. If you don't ask, you don't get. You know, mm-hmm. that's just, again, my my general um, view on things is if you want something, you've got to ask for it. Yeah. You've got to go for it. Yeah, so, I um, agree. I think this is good also for the audience out there, especially as also when we touched on previously in regards to sort of back office people that potentially want a bit more client contact building that soft skills Mm. financial planners that potentially want to step into senior management you know you don't ask you don't get if you want that extra responsibility go speak to your line managers go speak to the directors of the company you know ask how you Mm. can get involved because how are they supposed to know that you've got these ambitions and help you nurture them if if they're not aware of them themselves yeah Um, I mean unless you work for a really small company and it it is kind of everyone's really t- close and tight-knit um like you say they're not going to know you've got those ambitions if you don't make it clear so yeah mm-hmm. absolutely but redwood financial is close and tight-knit with the redwood family and i <laughs> think are. this we leads are. on to really nice on something that i want to speak about especially on the recruitment side of things so obviously we touched on this in our previous conversation that yeah. Family-owned businesses can sometimes have a bit <laughs> of a negative stigma and it's normally because someone has had a, a negative experience at one firm. And obviously not every firm is great, but you also can't taint, you know, all, you can't, you know, taint everyone with the same brush as such. So no. I guess to explain, you know, often um, pushback I get on family-owned businesses on the recruitment side of things is, oh, it's clicky, you know, oh, it's all the family that get promoted and I'm not going to get promoted. And, you know, it's the daughter <laughs> over, you know, me yeah. or the son over me. And that's, you know, yeah. sometimes how it can be perceived. How do you create that feeling of belonging within um, a um, sort of a family-run business? Yeah, well, I think anyone that's had that experience, you haven't met my dad because um, <laughs> my dad, God love him, my my dad, God love him, is is so brutally honest. 
Um, and, and it's a wonderful trait. You always know exactly where you stand with him. And from the beginning, when I came into the business, he, he was always very clear with me, um, but also publicly to the rest of the team, he would say, look, you're my daughter. Of course, I'm going to make sure that you're always okay. So if you need a job, you've got a job. Um, I'll always make sure you've got a roof over your head and you've got enough money coming in to pay your bills. But if the only thing you're good enough to do is to make tea and, you know, do a bit of filing and faxing, that's where you'll stay. And that's the job that you'll have and the, and the salary that goes with it. Anything else from here on out, that's on you. And dad was really brutally honest with that and was like, you're not getting anything more than just a foot in the door because you're my daughter. Everything else is on you to to push for. And if you want to go further and if you want to um, see clients and earn more money, that's on you. You've got you've got to do that. So and dad, as I say, said that to my face and was brutally honest to my face, (laughs) um, uh, but also would say it to the rest of the team. So I think they were very clear of. Oh, yeah. She's not getting any special treatment. Um, Literally, if if I was rubbish, um, he would have made sure I still had a job, but he would not have let me progress to any other position, no matter how senior, without the right skill sets or without being the right person. Um, and, And hopefully that's how most family businesses should run is it should be based on skills and who's the right person for the job, regardless of the family relationship. Um, but as I, I do appreciate, that's maybe not always the case. In terms of how we've kind of tackled it, you know, like you say, not wanting it to feel clicky. Um, we refer to the whole team as the Redwood family. Yet, Yes, there's a few of us that re- are related, but we refer to everyone as the Redwood family. Um, and it's so funny. We get really, really um, defensive when people refer to the rest of the team as staff. It's, it's such a silly little word, but it really bugs us. So Holly, who, Holly, who's my sister, she's our operations director. If someone external refers to the rest of the team as our staff, she's like, they're not our staff. They're, they're part of our, our team, they're our family. And she, she's so, we're so protective of that, not wanting to feel clicky, wanting it to feel like a family. And the other way that we do that is, we also give shares in the business. So after a year of, of working with us at Redwood, um, we they don't have to um, invest or contribute anything. We just give them shares in the family business. They're issued with a share certificate and they now become a shareholder and have a stake in the business with us. And that's so important, again, psychologically, but you know, just sort of from that mentality of then they now are part of something, can actually... You know, each year when the business makes a profit, we all get to share in that profit. And because they're shareholders in the business, you know, we're really honest with them. We open the accounts, we show them the books, they know how the business is doing, you know, turnover profit wise, which again is very unusual for a lot of companies to do yeah. that with with every every member of the team. So um, Chloe, who is our wonderful receptionist, um, she's been with us now several years. She has shares in the business. doesn't matter whether you're the receptionist or an advisor or a power planner. Every single one of them as a shareholder sees the business, sees the performance, and we all get to share in the profit. So we really all feel like we're working towards something for all of us to have a benefit in, not just the, the directors, not just the family owners of the business. It is all of us. And that's been a really big thing that we've done over the years now to really make sure that we're living by what we're saying. It's all good and well saying, oh yeah, everyone's part of the Redwood family. But then actually shouldn't we all share in that mm-hmm. in that profit when the business wins, we all win. Um and obviously if the business has a bad year, 
we all feel that pain. You know? <laughs> we, we all, so we, we, you know, we, there is really that sense of community, I think, from, from doing that. I think that must be so valuable and so powerful and so encouraging because as you just touched on, you know, it's not just the the family owners or the people directly in the family that are seeing the benefits of the business doing well. It's everyone. And, you know, over the long term as well, that encourages the whole Redwood family to to work harder and invest so much into their work because everyone's going to see the rewards. It's not just the the select few, it's everyone's. And I think the potentially other family-run businesses that are out there or or directors or owners of family-run businesses that are watching this, you know, this is a really, really encouraging way to make sure that everyone feels part of it. And as you said, everyone reaps the rewards because everyone's working just as hard as each other. Absolutely. And like you said, I think it's just something as a family business, you have to be more mindful of that culture. Any business you know, yeah. with any like hierarchy or leadership team has the potential to be clicky yeah. um, and needs to mon- monitor that. But I think, as you say, as a family business, going into it, the apprehension is almost, oh, it's definitely going to be clicky. So culturally, we really have to watch that and combat that and make sure that we're going above and beyond even a normal firm to make sure that it's not that way. Yeah. And this must be, well, will be really encouraging to the audience out there that are part of family run businesses um maybe within one or the director of one you know that you can combat that culture there ha- doesn't have to be yeah. this perception of clickiness and stuff like that the complete yeah. opposite you can extend yeah. your family and you can have yeah, yeah. with family as you know you can have yeah. a family of more than just your the, the director yeah. it can be everyone involved and then um, i'm sure redwood financially is an absolutely amazing place to work but lots of reasons including that but <laughs> Yasmin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Financial Planner Live podcast today. We have covered so many topics that I'm sure are going to be super or are super interesting for the audience. May that be the intersectionality of being a young and female financial planner, how to take that step from sort of um, advisor into management and, you know, how to make a family business feel like a proper family inclusive place to work. So thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me today, Yasmin. And it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.